Hey everybody, Joe here from the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. If you enjoy what we do here on the show and you think it's worth your hard-earned money, you can support the show via Patreon. Just a $1 donation gets you access to bonus episodes, our Discord, and regular episodes before everybody else. If you donate an elevated level, you get even more bonus content. A digital copy of my book, The Hooligans of Kandahar, and a sticker from our Teespring store. Our show will always be ad-free and is totally supporter-driven. We use that money to pay our bills, buy research materials that make this show possible, and support charities like the Kurdish Red Crescent, the Flint Water Fund, and the Halo Trust. Consider joining the Legion of the Old Crow today. And now back to the show. Hello, and welcome to the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. I am not Joe. Once again, it's Tom here, and I am joined by Joe. Yay, Joe. I would like uh, the, there to be a group of people who this is the series they started listening to this podcast on. They're like, oh, it's, it's hosted by an Irish guy. Like, surprise, it is not. <laughs> the, the old switcheroo, <laughs> the Irish switcheroo. I got to say, Joe, you look like, um, you know that YouTube guy, Simon Whistler, who has like a million channels? And, yes, like, he's talk- the host of YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. So like, you know, real 2 a.m. I can't sleep watching. You look exactly like him right now because Joe does not have any hair right now. <laughs> I had a a small uh, medical procedure I'm not going to talk about that required me to shave my head. Uh, And uh, I have been told that I now that I look like Simon Whistler and I look like I was the background uh, mob goon in like uh, Eastern Promises or something. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Fun fact, there was no Russian actors in uh, Eastern Promises. They were all Armenians. Yeah, I mean, when you you have to outsource, and and also Vika Mortensen, who's uh, now an honorary Armenian. <laughs> I mean, like it's kind of exactly what you've done with these this series because you've outsourced it to me. They outsourced Eastern Promises to Armenians. <laughs> <laughs> eh, close enough. I mean, yeah. all the Russians that moved here can't seem to tell the difference, so it's fine. <laughs> I mean, like you know, hey, hey, reconquer the Caucasus. <sighs> well, they're trying. They're trying, aren't they? That is part of the problem. Yeah, they're doing their best. They're doing their best. You know, try uh, conquering by a thousand cuts or uh, conquering by a thousand bottles of kvass. I think I've told this story before on the show, and I hate to like fall into that that pit of like I don't remember what I've said on an episode and what I've don't. But I've been doing this for a long time, so I apologize. Uh, the other day, uh, somebody asked me for directions. He's Russian, and he asked me in Russian. I don't speak Russian. And uh, but he spoke English, so he's asking like, "Oh, well, like, I can't find the where the street is because he was on like one of the few streets that doesn't also have like Russian under the Armenian or English under the Armenian, because uh, n- in the center part of the city, it's mostly both or all three, right? Uh, and in the older parts, it's only uh, Armenian and Russian. And uh, he's like, "Well, I don't understand when there's not Russian on Russian on these signs. Like, you don't, huh?" <laughs> <laughs> I'm. I mean, like, Weird, I, that is. I have a friend who loves going to like Eastern Europe and going to the Caucasus. You know, for a couple of days holidays, he has like one of those jobs where he can do that. But he's Australian and he also speaks Russian. So if you see like a six foot three ginger Australian guy going around speaking Russian, then that's <laughs> probably my mate. There's definitely a particular type of guy. Most most of those guys ends up end up in Georgia. I don't know why. Uh, the the uh, the expat community is uh, like a foothold in Tbilisi. Uh, they don't really stay here. Um, I don't entirely know why. Uh, but, but, but I'm, like, I'm not mad en- about it. But like, funnily enough, like this dude uh, lived in Ireland. Now lives in Belgium, and like 
when you, when I asked him, I was like, oh, where would you like love to live? And he was like, Tbilisi. So yeah. there you go. Yeah. I don't I don't know why it's like one of the expat places in the Caucasus. Well, really, like the only one because like no expats are gonna go fucking hang out in Baku or whatever. Um, <laughs> I mean, unless you're a very very particular type of a uh, expat who has a certain type of contract. Yeah, you work for the oil state owned oil company or whatever. Uh, like you get them to like come visit here, but it, normally it takes like I have quite a few friends who actually fall into this category, but they're like very weird and i mean that in the best way possible where like you could tell that they wouldn't get along with other expats or whatever uh but uh yeah it's it's very interesting that i don't know why tbilisi is this is is this magnet for it i guess i don't know i i don't i don't get that kind of life yeah I, i i it doesn't really appeal to me either but one thing that does appeal to me and this is a great segue is talking about (laughs) Irish history in particular, the certain segment of Irish history that we are at right now in this series on the Troubles. Now, some people have spoken to me in the past, you know, uh, weeks since the first episode has come out and said that, oh, you know, we can't wait to hear you talk about this or that. And like, this is, you know, six hours of audio about the history of the Troubles. There are people who've dedicated their entire careers to it. I can talk about everything. and, you know, once again, to reiterate that this series is about helping people understand what was the Troubles, why it happened, and really the the environment around it. It's not necessarily about specific people. There are people who will crop up over and over again. But, you know, this is really about the people of Northern Ireland, how it affected their lives and the overall, like, state of the nation. Um, It's not necessarily about oh, I'm just going to talk about Ian Paisley or Bernadette Devlin or Martin McGuinness. You know, they do pop up, but this is about, you know, the overall history. And anyone who has listened to this show before, and if you have just been listening to this series, you know, you're very welcome. Um, <laughs> but uh, this show kind of, it's about, you know, the bigger picture. So um, to catch anyone up, if you have taken a break from listening to this in the Summer months of 1969 saw some of the worst rioting in Northern Ireland's history, mainly in response to the heavy crackdown on the civil rights movement in the province. As time went on, the tar- the marches became less concerned with civil rights and m- became more about like the national question. Um, the IRA had been quiet for a number of years beforehand and decided that a non-violent response would be the best, uh, would be best, and did not fight. Um, you had the Battle of the Bogside, and in Belfast, entire streets or houses were burned down by rioters, and over 3,500 families, mainly Catholics, were driven out of their homes as a response. Seven people were killed and 100 wounded as the rioters uh, began to use guns. Uh, many ordinary Protestants were appalled by the dramatic uh, reaction of the government to the civil rights campaign, although many hardliners support it. And that's kind of something that um, someone mentioned to me in the previous episode is that the like the regular people who are caught up in this you know there was a sectarian divide in society but there was still quite a lot of people who were like you know just wanted to get on with their life and that's something that of course kind of it comes up in conversation a lot more now that we are you know 25 years removed from like the core of the troubles yes there is still some uh social and political conflict in the north but Quite a lot of people just want to get on with their lives um, and will bring some aspects of either republicanism or unionism into it. But like the majority of people just want to live. Um, I think that's something that a lot of people kind of 
either willingly or don't understand from any sectarian conflict, civil war, whatever in history, where like the vast majority of people do not give a fuck. They just want to go on living their lives in peace and uh, and relative peace and safety. I like it, it you know. It likewise, famously, the uh, like the Revolutionary War, the vast majority of people didn't really care in the United States. Uh, yeah, <laughs> because like it didn't really apply to them. Like they just wanted to go on living their lives. Like, mm. it, how could they not? I mean, that's human nature is to just get through the day. Uh, how yeah. like it's really weird that people think that like the vast majority of people in Northern Ireland were either hardcore unionists or hardcore uh, like uh, Republicans. It's really it's a it's a really strange thing to think of that way. And is it's also like worth bearing in mind that that is that you know. Irish Catholics on the whole were like very marginalized and that's why this the civil rights kind of campaign started it wanted equality in terms of like their treatment and then it sort of like began to transform into a more nationalist movement um but in the Republic of Ireland economic prosperity had made most citizens happy with life and indifferent to Northern Ireland and the issue of reunification however it soon uh, began to look as if Northern Ar- the Northern Ireland government was suppressing a valid civil rights movement which was now almost collapsing into civil war. On August 13th, the Irish Taoiseach Jack Lynch said that the Irish government would not stand by and see innocent people injured. Some unionists thought this was a threat to invade Northern Ireland to protect the Catholic population. It is also thought that the Irish began placing troops near the border at this time. Um, on the Did other they? side, uh, they they mobilised you know, people maybe to field hospitals, but there was no mass mobilisation that like essentially was fear-mongered in the unionist community at this time. It's not like Ireland is exactly a military powerhouse. Uh, I mean, invading Northern Ireland would be a war against the United Kingdom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and now we just have economic war across the border. Uh, that's what <laughs> we got. Um, but across the uh, Irish Sea, the UK government realized in August that Northern Ireland was about to collapse into anarchy because the RUC was simply not large enough to maintain order, but also... Uh, yes, it- that was the problem with the RUC. That yeah. was the problem. It was, it was not big enough. That, that's, that's the fucking joke of like, uh, there is only two policies that we can do it's like the guy sweating hitting a button it says more <laughs> cops or more troops or more troop cops like those are the only two options it's one or the other um so on the 15th of august the uk prime minister harold wilson ordered the british army into belfast and Derry to support the ruc and um, this is what we talked about at the end of the last episode uh, the army is still uh was still in ireland uh, in northern ireland until you know the late 90s uh, four days later, he Are also they still ordered kind of there. Yeah, there's still like some station uh, troops in Northern Ireland, but it's kind of like the same way you would have, say, a military base in uh, Alaska. Like you know, and it's why there's so many military bases in the south of the U.S. Is uh, I mean, to be fair, they fucking deserve it. Fuck the south. <laughs> <laughs> um. Four days later, he also ordered the Stormont government to establish uh, better community relations, um, introduce one man, one vote, disband the B-specials, and disarm and restructure the RUC. Yes, we're going to restructure the police that is known for the use of violence. Guys, I have an idea. We could make them more violent. What if there was more cops? (laughs) Everything is just uh, like, every part of society is just a barnacle that more cops can grow off of. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, when you have sect, I mean, it, in every sectarian conflict I've ever heard of, this same kind of thing happens. You can look at I don't know, anywhere in the world where it's still going on. You can look at Iraq when it was happening there. It's like weird. How did we get like 16 new law enforcement divisions, but they're all still soldiers? <laughs> yeah, yeah. All same fatigues, just different badges. Yeah. Um, but with their demands now unexpectedly met, the official civil rights campaign uh, slowly began to peter out. However, this is not the end of the story. The violence that had erupted, uh, directed mainly towards the Catholic community, had prompted many people there to rekindle their old desire for United Ireland. In 1969, a fierce debate began within the ranks of the IRA. Some members supported a non-violent strategy. However, many others accused the leadership of going soft on the aim of United Ireland and pointed to the new presence of the British Army in Northern Ireland as a provocating force. The, this militant group split off from split off in 1970 for. They formed the Provisional IRA. Uh, this is something that I'm going to have to explain so much in this episode. There is so many splitter groups. It, it's, uh, do you know what? This is just like a leftist tendency infighting. You know? Yes. Yes, I, I am a Marxist-Leninist IRA member. Um, but someone please don't clip that out. <laughs> um, and began a bombing campaign in Northern Ireland and sometimes on the mainland of Britain designed to destroy the economy and force the British to withdraw. Um, the provisional IRA almost certainly received money and arms from members of the Irish government at the start of their campaign. Although the really? T-shock, yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh, wait until the next episode. Wait until I have a list of probably about fifteen people that you will not expect that sent money to money and guns to the IRA. I mean, there was. I mean, if if we're talking about next episode, hold on then. Okay, uh, it's 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 always very funny because I remember hearing things about like uh, the the. Irish diaspora, if that's the the word that people use for Irish Americans, that like had jars out that said like for the cause, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, to collect change, like they were the Shriners, yeah. But like this is this is the you know the weird kind of thing with a lot of Irish diaspora, particularly in the U.S. Well, the U.S. Uh, Irish, I mean, as your show Thirty uh, Third County shows, like they're they're nuts. Yeah, it, it is like. Once again, people who have like no context of anything that has actually happened in Ireland since, you know, the late 19th century. But, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> um, uh, the Taoiseach sacked the members involved in the scandal and the provisionals also targeted policemen and became increasingly involved in civilian demonstrations and riots. This is going to become very important in they, a couple uh, of minutes. They targeted policemen within the Republic of Ireland or Northern Ireland? In Northern Ireland. Oh, okay. So, okay. Or UC members. That doesn't uh, surprise me. Okay, I thought, yeah. I thought they were actually taking... Uh, what, what are the police called in Ireland again? I don't remember. Uh, the Guardi. Yeah, the guy. I thought, I thought they, meant they were targeting the Guardi. I'm like, oh, fuck, I never heard of that one before. Yeah, uh, like, but the, this is something I'll talk about in... There's a lot of, like, you know, teasing for the next episode because... Uh, when you get to the end of this one, you'll understand exactly where we're going to pick up in the next episode. Outstanding. Um, but 25 people were killed in 1970 and 174 were killed in 1971. The Loyalist UVF also began to use violence to protect the Protestant community from the Provisional IRA and also launched their own offensive against Catholics and against the Irish Republic. Um, by mid-1970, the Northern Ireland government realised that the Provisional IRA was rapidly recruiting and would soon have the ability to fight a significant guerrilla war in Northern Ireland. They also realised that if they struck now, the army might have a chance to check this growth. So on the evening in uh, on an evening in late July 1970, the army imposed a curfew on the Catholic Falls Road in West Belfast, 
and began storming houses and searching for arms. However, the searches uncovered only 5% of the house uncovered arms and only about 5% of the houses searched, much fewer than they had been anticipating. And searches were also violent and the net effect was increased support for the IRA and speed up recruitment. Yeah, who would have thought? Who would have thought kicking open people's doors would have driven recruitment for the people that want to kill you? Yeah, for as someone who uh, fought in, you fought in Iraq or Afghanistan? Afghanistan. For as someone who fought in Afghanistan, I'm sure you are uh, familiar with uh, this uh, this phenomenon of over uh, emphasizing the problem and then coming up with a minor minor results. I mean, it's a feedback loop. It's the concept of counterinsurgency operations. That's all you do is constantly piss off the local population and swell the ranks of the insurgency, which is why they never really work unless yep. the insurgency like eventually comes to a peace agreement like the, you know, the good friday accords uh like otherwise you can't win you're all you're doing is perpetuating an infinite war that will never end yep yep um in april 1970 ian paisley uh the honorable father ian paisley who is a uh, rolling in hell right now um won a seat at stormont which only served to underline the split between uh, within unionism between the moderates and the extremists. So Ian Paisley is probably one of the more hardline, well, he's probably the most hardline person at this time in unionism who is a public figure. He is a key figure in building that fear of, you know, Catholic takeover. Like even as you moved into like the late 80s, the fear around, oh, because Catholics had generally higher birth rates than uh protestants they were like oh they're gonna outbreed us yeah there's a reason why having a catholic amount of kids is a saying (laughs) um at the same time the alliance party was formed in order to an an attempt to bring about reconciliation between the two sides and in august 1970 a group of socialist nationalist politicians formed the social democratic and labor party it's the sdlp a party with no links to paramilitary groups or terrorism which soon became the main voice for the nationalist community in ireland so this is kind of you know you have these like parties that are growing and you see the sdlp come in as kind of representative for the like we're talking about the people who just want to get on with their life a more moderate uh irish catholic community that is you know kind of a holdover from the civil rights movements but is still you know it's still left of center like still quite far further left than like the middle ground but you know it, it's important to know it's like the um, party for normal people yeah party for normal <laughs> people um by august 1971 the army and the ruc had an idea a good idea who the main members of the paramilitary organizations were so they decided to introduce internment oh god uh, lovely yes so uh this was to uh arrest- you mean like internment camps do you <laughs> Uh, basically, uh, to oh, arrest God and hold people it. without evidence to take them off the streets and hopefully prevent further murders. Within six months, 2,357 people, mainly from the nationalist community, although uh, only about 10% of the final total uh, were loyalists. Uh, this is so six- fucking stupid. All they're going to do is create training camps for Republicans. Yep. You, know, <laughs> like like- they, you already detained them. They might as well become militants now. Yeah, it, you know, I'd say uh, voting for the leopards by eating my face party. I mean, famously, like uh, 
the leader of ISIS got more radicalized in a uh, American POW camp or internment camp. Uh, yeah, like that that literally always fucking happens. It, every single time this happens throughout history, it's like Camp Buka in Iraq was like effectively the Al Qaeda factory for the same reason. <laughs> the innocent people would get thrown in there and they'd be like, man, fuck them. I'm already in prison. I'm, I might as well try to kill them. Yeah. So... Uh, if you are wondering about what's the conversion rate of uh, this 2,357 people that they actually, you know, managed to convict, 1,600 uh, people were subsequently released without any charges. Uh, so less than half? Uh, <laughs> so about two-thirds of people were just, like, let go without any charges. That's not even saying the amount of people who were pre- who had charges pressed against them and then were subsequently let go. Right. Like, I feel like a lot of those charges were bullshit, and even the British knew it, which is surprising. Yeah. So, like, it's fairly obvious that this was badly organized. Uh, many innocent people were detained, and most of the leaders of the paramilitary organizations slipped through the net. Um, this is true, like, a series of, you know, safe houses and networks where they could be, you know, housed, but also through the use of people holding arms. So, you had. Uh, of plausible deniability how, how dumb do the british think that the leaders of the ira are they're like oh no i have my membership badge right here and my armalite in my backpack like <laughs> how fucking dumb do they think they are yeah this is this, this isn't the red army faction you're dealing with you're dealing with actual <laughs> professionals <laughs> hey say what you will about the red army faction but uh yeah i got nothing they blew up a banker that one time yeah like i mean they're both both groups are very good at prison breaks i'll give them that that is true I actually, I may have confused them with Bider Meinhof. Anyway, moving yeah. on. Um, internment served only to increase support for paramilitary organizations yet again, and this is when the rioting against internment also began. Oh, who um, would have thought? Who would have thought? If it was at the consequences of my own actions. So pretty much a lot, like a riot, the rioting, really consisted of uh, protesters and demonstrators at army checkpoints, and you know, throwing stuff like stones bricks and everything um and also in august um this is where we're going to get depressing um was the bally murphy massacre in belfast well that doesn't sound promising yeah they all had teas and cakes um (laughs) an event uh over the course of three days from the 9th until the 11th of august in which essentially a snatch and grab operation was undertaken operation demetrius was a series of dawn raids conducted by the 1st Battalion Parachute Regiment. Oh, that's never one, a good sign. One para, as they would commonly be known, uh, conducted a series of raids, the main focus of which was to arrest and intern suspected members of the provisional IRA. Um, the Parachute Regiment was selected to carry out the operation. Um, they, the paras... I, I'm going to go off script here for a second. Um, the paras are... They're fucking psychotic. Famous. <laughs> famous for their levels of violence and just like being just like go you put them in if you want people hurt pretty much to put it lightly um the operation was chaotic and informed by poor intelligence resulting in the number of innocent people being interned uh by focusing solely on republicans and excluded violence carried out by loyalist paramilitaries some nationalist neighborhoods attempted to disrupt the army with barricades petrol bombs and gunfire in the Catholic district of Ballymurphy, 10 civilians were shot and killed between the evenings of the 9th of August and the morning of the 11th of August, while another died of heart failure. 
Is that killing, by the Paras or the... Yep, that's by Jesus. the Paras. So the killing of the 11 civilians at Ballymurphy enraged the Catholic community and it further solidified the opposition to internment and any efforts by the British Army to establish, quote, uh, establish peace and to root out the dangerous elements within Northern Ireland. So um, I, I'm, we spoke about this before. Uh, we spoke about this yesterday before we recorded that. Um, I want to make an effort both in this and in subsequent events in this episode to name and talk about the people who actually died because most of these people have never actually received any justice. Um, all Pretty much no one has stood charges or been convicted of any of these crimes. And, um, you know, this is for the next like two minutes, this is going to be quite grim. So, you know, if you're sensitive to that, just please be aware. Um, Francis Quinn, 19, uh, shot while going to aid a wounded man. Father Hugh Mullen, 38, a Catholic priest shot while going to the aid of a wounded man, re- uh, reputedly while waving a white cloth to indicate his intentions. Joan Connolly, 44, shot as she stood opposite the army base. It has been claimed that she was shot by three soldiers and that she may have survived had she been given medical attention sooner, but she lay injured in a field for several hours. Daniel Taggart, 44, was shot 14 times. Most of the bullets entered his back, allegedly as he lay injured on the ground. Noel Phillips, 20, shot as he stood opposite the army base. Joseph Murphy, 41, shot as he stood opposite the army base. Murphy was subsequently taken into army custody and after his release, as he was dying in hospital, he claimed that he would have been beaten and shot again while he had been beaten and shot again in, while in custody. When his body was exhumed in October 2015, a second bullet was discovered in his body, which activists had cor- said corroborated his claim. So he was executed. Like he was, he was summarily executed. Yes. One civilian was killed on the 10th of August. That's Edward Doherty, 28, shot while walking along White, Wa- White Rock Road. Another three civilians were shot on the 11th of August. John Laverty and Joseph Corr were shot at separate points. Uh, at the top of White Rock Road, Laverty was shot twice, once in the back and once in the back of his leg. Corr was shot several times and died of his injuries on the 27th of August. John McCurr, 49, was shot in the head by an unknown sniper while standing outside a Catholic church and died of his injuries on the 20th of August. While well, a number of eyewitnesses stated that the soldiers were seen shooting towards the area, the 2021 inquest could not establish who had killed him. Uh, an 11th civilian died on the 11th of August. Following the, an altercation with a group of soldiers, Paddy McCarthy, 44. Paddy McCarthy, uh, his family alleged that an empty gun was put in his mouth and the trigger pulled. He suffered a heart attack and died shortly after the alleged confrontation. It fucking snipers shooting into Catholic churches. It's fucking yep. insane. You had, like, Paddy McCarthy, like, essentially was tortured to death. He had a gun put in his mouth and the trigger pulled and he had a heart attack because of it. Yes. Yeah. So... With that all in mind, and that is what First Para are like, in January 1972, a large anti-internment protest was organised for the 30th of January in Derry. The day is described as a cold and crisp morning with a clear, uh, and th- with a clear sky, and there was an air of tension from early on in the march. Um, I'm going to just warn everyone, this section is quite long, and just kind of brace yourself. Um, if you kn- if you know, you know. Hovering in the sky was an army helicopter, and from this vantage point would come one of the most important accounts of the events that was to unfold. Surveillance officer INQ two zero three zero 
as you would come to know in subsequent years, recalled what it looked like up there. I can, and I quote, I can recall seeing lots and lots of people on the ground, perhaps as many as five or 10,000. They appeared to be congregating around one particular spot. All of a sudden, there was a burst of action. People began running in all directions and the crowd effectively scattered. I can think of no way to describe it than the effect of dropping a stone into an ant's nest. It was almost as if people on the ground disappeared, although I could see them hiding behind walls and buildings. So, um, for anyone who is interested, I, I'm going to talk a lot about you know specific streets um, and movement on those streets. I would recommend maybe looking up a map of the Bogside area in Derry if you want, if you're interested to follow along, because it is quite important. And you know, this event has been scrutinised for the past thirty years. Um, down on the ground, it was a different story. Despite the ban on marches, many were keen to get out and protest not only internment but also the government's ban on marches themselves. Young and old alike were in attendance as the march left the Cregan area of the city in the early afternoon. Uh, they left the nationalist area of the city and moved on into William Street. The plan was originally to end up at Guildhall Square with speeches to be heard from the bed of a flatbed truck that was in front uh, that was at the front of the body of marchers. Security, the security forces, i.e. the RUC and army, did not want any clashes between marchers and loyalist groups and keen to avoid any unwarranted violence, they erected a barrier on William Street refer- that is referred to as Barrier 14. And the march was rerouted through William Street and the Rossville Flats towards Free Derry Corner, which that's the building with, you know, you are now entering Free Derry painted on it, uh, where the speeches would now be held. A section of the protesters split off to the march and headed further down William Street to face the army barrier. They threw stones and bricks at the uh, and the army fired tear gas in return. Similar rioting broke out on Little James Street and Sackville Street at army barriers 12 and 13. The army began to use rubber bullets and, t- and CS gas to subdue the crowd, but once again the rioters began to throw the tear gas canisters back as they de- and then they deployed water cannons in order to disperse the crowds. So Joe, are you ready to be depressed? Oh, Born ready. I've been preparing for this my whole life. While this was happening, uh, crowds gathered at Free Dairy Corner to where Bernadette Devlin and the other speakers prepared to give speeches to the crowds of protesters. At the same time, the members of First Paro were preparing to go over the barriers to conduct an arrest operation as they had been ordered by General Ford, commander of the land forces. First Paro had been redeployed from their base near Belfast that morning ahead of expected disturbances in Derry. Colonel Derek Wilford, the CEO of First Paro, had briefed both First Para and Support Company the night before on their mission. If rioting was to break out, they were to go over the barrier on a snatch-and-grab basis only, and to not engage uh, demonstrators in a long-distance conflict. In and out, with limited contact with the rioters and protesters, was the name of the game. It's worth noting here that the names of most of the soldiers involved in this operation have been legally obscured for security reasons, quote-unquote security reasons, <laughs> Um so they so they don't get a, so someone doesn't uh, bring them to the uh, finding out phase of fucking around. Yep, yep. Um, but it is likely that many of the soldiers involved would happen over the next fifteen minutes would likely have been involved in Operation Demetrius, and there is not there is a not insignificant likelihood that some of them were also involved in the Bally Murphy massacre that had occurred six months later. It's you know so they're just a death squad. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Um. It is also worth noting that at this time, the IRA, or more specifically, the provisional IRA, mainly employed two tactics when engaging with the British Army in situations such as riots, or are, are, or are at least alleged to. Firstly, and most commonly, the, they use snipers positioned at strategic points, 
such as the top of apartment buildings, in sympathizers or other members' flats, or from a vantage point far enough away from the army that they could easily get away or at least blend back into the crowd. Secondly, gunmen armed with pistols or provisional IRA members armed with improvised nail bombs will be concealed among the riders and take the opportunities to take shots at soldiers or hurl nail bombs alongside other non-lethal missiles uh, thrown at army barricades and possibly thrown by other riders. Um, This will become quite relevant in a second. At around 3.55, two things happened almost simultaneously, which would change the course of history. First, uh, two members of First Para who had their rifles trained on the riding crowd in the waste ground in front of them spotted who they believed was about to throw a nail bomb. Soldiers A and B fired their rifles. Damien Donaghy, 15, and John Johnson, aged 55, fell to the ground. Damien, who was their intended target, was shot in the thigh, and Johnson was hit by shrapnel from the bullets fired at the former. Um, and it's worth noting that uh, the weapons that were carried by the soldiers this day were L1A1 self-loading rifles, so SLRs, um, a semiotic rifle which fires a 7.62 round with a muzzle velocity of 2,700 feet per second and uh, a range of over 1,600 feet. In the context of what is about to happen, a shot would travel at such speed and with such impact if it was fired at you and hit the target, you would almost die instantly. Yeah, that's a, that's a big bullet. <clears throat> yeah, a, a big bullet to be fired in a quite a close uh, area. That is instant death it's for you and anyone like behind battle you. battle rifles aren't for crowd control. Weird. Second, either immediately before or immediately afterwards, no one seems to agree, the same soldiers received an incoming round that shattered a plastic drain pipe on the Presbyterian church behind them. They believed that it had come from the Rossville Flats, but likely came from Columkilla Court, from which another soldier had been shot three months prior. Shortly after the drain pipe shot, Wilford ordered First Pirate to go into the bog site to conduct their snatch and grab not on foot, but in, the, in their armoured Saracen transport vehicles, commonly referred to as pigs by the soldiers. At 7 minutes past 4, that's 4.07 for our American listeners, Brigadier McLennan uh, gave the command for First Pirate to cross the barrier at uh, Barrier 14 at William Street, but told Wilford and the other NCOs on the ground uh, that there was to be no running battles down Rossville Street. At this point, most of the marchers had headed towards Free, uh, Free Dairy Corner, only a few hundred metres away, and Wilford, according to himself, hoped to be able to sever the vein of rioters. Wilford did not just send one company across the line, he also sent support company through Barrier 12 and Little James Street. And as they crossed over, General Ford, whose decision it was to use First Power in the first place, was recorded by journalists on the scene uh, saying over comms, go on First Parrot, go and get them, and good luck. As the army vehicles crossed Barrier 12 and proceeded down Rossville Street, the crowd began to disperse and run away. One vehicle carrying Soldier N turned onto the waste ground around Eden Place. The second carrying Soldier O ended up in the car park in front of Rossville Flats after hitting two civilians, Alana Burke and Thomas Harkin, along the way. So not only were they... They ran them over? Yep. Jesus Christ. Uh, what would happen next uh, would spark the events to come. After Soldier N exited his Saracen, he found himself in the alleyway between Eden Place and Chamberlain Street. Feeling trapped by crowds, he fired two shots above their heads, which in future years he would say he did uh, as the only way that could stop them from attacking him and his fellow soldiers. 
but he likely did so as he saw it as a much more efficient way of sufficiently scaring the civilians into moving on. So Right, of you know, course. Once again, he's firing a 7.62 uh, SLR round above the heads of civilians. Uh, in which in vo- the middle of a city. Which violated the British Army's yellow card, which defined their you know terms of terms of engagement with using their uh, rifles in you know a quote unquote peacekeeping uh, operation. So with Derry's walls on one side and the high concrete of the Rossville Flats in the front, the sound of these two shots echoed across the bog site in the echo chamber created by the walls of concrete. This is likely what led to the other soldiers to mistake. Soldier ends warning shots as live incoming rounds. Live incoming rounds that would require a response. Mm-hmm. Some of the soldiers from the mortar platoon began to fire from their position in the Rossville car park. Um, a local priest, Father Daly, and a young boy, young seventeen-year-old boy, Jackie Duddy, were among those running towards the for cover towards the flats. Daly was ahead of Duddy when he heard a shot ring out, and the young man gasped for air. When he turned around, Jackie was already on the ground, face down. When the firing temporarily stopped, ja- Father Daly ran back into the car park to administer aid to Jackie, but he was already he had already been turned over by another man and was bleeding extensively from his chest. Duddy, who attended the march with his friends and was looking forward to hearing Bernadette Devlin speak that day, was shot in the back as he was trying to run away. The bullet entered his through his right shoulder, piercing his lungs, breaking his windpipe, and exiting through his chest. With his breathing impaired and suffering from extensive bleeding, an autopsy would show that he would have died within minutes. As Jackie Duddy took his last breath, Father Daly, realising the boy was dying, administered the last rites, and his body was soon carried by Daly and others past army lines and through the bog side. The footage of this taken by journalists remains one of the most upsetting pieces of evidence of the injustice of the Troubles. At the same time Jackie Duddy was shot, Margaret Daly, aged 38, was shot in the same car park. Uh, Although thankfully wounded, as were Michael Bridge, 25, and Michael Bradley, 22. Meanwhile, soldiers from the anti-tank platoon of First Para reached the ramp of Kells Walk on the, west side of, on the west side of Rossville Street. Around 80 yards in front of them, there was a barricade made out of rubble that the bogsiders had placed in order to stop the army going further in the air, into the area. When the anti-tank platoon reached the barricade, they immediately opened fire. Michael Kelly, 17, was shot and mortally wounded, and a group of protesters ran to carry his body away. Subsequ- uh, then the soldiers shot and killed five more people around the rubble um, Hugh Gilmore 17 William Nash 19 John Young 17 Michael McDade 20 and Kevin McElhenney 17 so they were trying to remove this body and just immediately shot them Jesus Christ oh wait no Joe this is the most appropriate use of it it does get worse uh, I hate having that used against me as William Nash lay there, his father, Alexander Nash, 52, went to tend to his son in his dying moments. As he bent over the body of his son, he raised his left arm towards the soldiers to try and signal them to, shot shoot, to stop shooting. They shot him through his raised arm. Jesus Christ. In the final, final moments of this shooting, four members of the anti-tank platoon split off from the Kells Walk ramp and began running towards Glenfoda Park North, a courtyard uh, of flats on the side of Rossville Street. As they entered the courtyard, civilians immediately began to run away to escape them. As soon as the four soldiers entered Glenfoda Park, they began to open fire on the crowd of civilians. They shot and killed William Kinney, 26, and James Ray, 22, and wounded five others. James Ray, as subsequent inquiry would conclude, was shot twice, once while attempting to run away, and a second time while he lay on the ground dying. 
Among the soldiers who did the shooting in Glenfoddle Park, one soldier, G, went into the neighbouring courtyard of Abbey Park where he shot 35-year-old Gerald Kinney, uh, or Jared Kinney. Some witnesses said that he had his hands in the air and was shouting, don't shoot, don't shoot. He died almost instantly as the bullet passed through his body and also killed Gerald Donaghy. Shortly afterwards, some sh- soldiers who had been firing in Glenfoddle Park and Abbey Park got to the bottom of bottom corner of Glenfoddle Park overlooking the back of the Rossville Flats. Soldier or soldiers or soldier, as it is not clear how many were involved, opened fire on four men who were between Rossville Flats and Joseph Place. The casualties included Patrick Doherty, who was mortally wounded. As he lay dying, he cried out for help, and and Bernard McGuigan, who went out to help him, was shot in the head, dying instantly. Two other men, Patrick Campbell, 53, and Daniel McGovern, 37, were wounded by the shots fired by the soldiers in the same area. It had only been 10 minutes since the army drove into the bog side to the shooting of these last few civilians. 13 people had been murdered and another 15 lay wounded. One more would die five months later and the wounds he suffered. They killed more than one person per minute. They killed and wounded more than one person per minute since rolling into the bog side. Yep. So as the ambulances arrived and the dead were and wounded were taken away from the area, the army were already telling their version of events to the world through the press that had originally come to cover the march. Colonel Wilford and General Ford were in front of the media within minutes of the ending of the shooting and spinning their version of events. Wilford, although conceding that the death toll was high, he estimated around he estimated around five. He steadfastly defended his soldiers, saying he estimated five. Ha- he estimated five, and he said that was high. Yeah. Oh my god. Um, he said his soldiers had been petrol bombed, nail bombed, and had acid thrown on them, and had but used. They haven't. An- but they fucking hadn't been. Oh, Joe, we're going to talk about that in a second. Um, he had used the necessary amount of force to subdue what he called escalating violence of the day. A journalist asked Wilford about, uh, about local residents saying First Para had used excessive force in the bogside, and he paused for a second and then said, well, what is force? If you are fired at, you return fire. They understand that perfectly well. It's like Bill Clinton, after he got his dick sucked in the Oval Office, asked like, well, it defines in what you mean by is, you know, <laughs> it's like, man, fuck off. You, you fucking asshole. Dep- it depends on what your definition of is, is like, oh, okay, we're doing this. Okay. What is force? Bitch, you know what force is. You, you have the fucking yellow cards that you give your soldiers that outline the, the fucking, the rules of engagement and the level of force that they're allowed. They know what force is. Fuck him. Even more importantly, it was the they that he used in they understand that perfectly well. He knew exactly what brush he was painting the demonstrators with. Yeah, who is is they in the situation? The children or the priests that your soldiers murdered? Yeah, yeah. And like the... For anyone who is interested, there's like a lot of photos of this day and there's a lot of stories from people about this day and it's... Like, you know, when uh, Patrick Doherty and Bernie, uh, Bernard McGuigan were shot, it's just, it's so cruel. Like, when uh, in the subsequent days, uh, one of Bernard McGuigan's teeth was found embedded in the wall of one of the flats, because once again, a seven, 7.62 round fired at that speed and hit you in the head. There's not much left to your head. Yeah. Yeah. So, by 5.30... All the soldiers who had been involved in the earlier shooting had been summoned by Major Loden, a commander of support company, to a small command vehicle where they corroborated their stories and made sure that a certain version of events would be represented the next day and for every day after that. 
That doesn't surprise me at all. A story of nail bombers, rogue gunmen, and a company of soldiers besieged on all sides by terrorists and their sympathizers. Trained soldiers who had recently seen combat in Cyprus and Aden, you know, afraid for their lives of teenagers armed with stones and bricks that were as lethal as their SLRs. By the following morning, each shooter had been interviewed by the Royal Academy Police on precisely what they did the previous day. Yeah, so that's grim. Fucking Christ, man. (laughs) That's fucking awful. Like... Well, like, I didn't know that the Brits had their own iSense group, and well done, guys. Yeah, fucking like the, psychopaths. And not a single one of these fucking people have been to prison. No. Of course no, not. N- none of them have e- even been named. Jesus um, Christ. Um, like, in, I, I would name them because some of their names are publicly out there, but unfortunately I live in the UK and cannot afford a legal case. Um, I don't want Johnny Mercer to uh, shit his pants and try and sue me. Can um, you can you be held liable for for yeah, naming them even even yeah. though that there's no argument that they are the people in this case? Yeah, yeah you can be sued much. for libel. Well, to be fair, you certainly can now since I compared them to the Iceland Scrupin. <laughs> 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 well, I live in Armenia. Come sue me, motherfuckers. Yeah, I'm you sure the le- me fucks. I'm sure the legal system on Ar- Armenia would love to try a bloody Sunday soldier versus a podcaster. To be fair, it'd be the one place in the world where Irish people would actually get justice is in Armenia. <laughs> hey, I, Irish people are the Armenians of Europe. <laughs> Pretty <say>. much, yeah. <laughs> um, in the immediate aftermath, Burnett Devlin will return to Westminster. Devlin, who had been elected as an MP prior to the Battle of the Bogside, had become the de facto mouthpiece for the Catholic community of Derry and by extension the wider Northern Ireland Northern Tom, for our listeners, would you say that these people's names are easily Googleable? Um, If you look up, I think if you put it similar to everything, if you just put Bloody Sunday Soldiers Reddit, uh, it will probably come up. Well, there, folks, there you go. (laughs) That's not libel, is it? Is that libel? No, uh, no, no. no. Um, I'm just saying, if you want to find any information in general, if you want to question answer, whether it's about podcast editing about writing, about research. If you just add Reddit onto something in Google, you will generally find it. I'm you'll, not saying you'll certainly look it find up. a answer. <laughs> yeah, we're not saying go look up these men's names. We're just saying that you could if you so choose. Yes, exactly. All in all in the interest of personal research. Devlin had become, you know, the de facto mouthpiece for the Irish Catholic community in Northern Ireland and Earlier in the day, as she was on the back of the lorry, some of the witnesses said that as soon as people began to rush towards the platform to escape the rubber bullets, she told them to hold fast, assuring the crowds that they outnumbered the soldiers 15 to 1 and to stay calm. As soon as the shots rang out from the SLRs, everyone hit the deck and the chaos we had just spoken about ensued. The following day, the Home Secretary, Reginald Malding, uh, addressed Parliament about the massacre that had happened the day before. He told the House that the army had returned aim shots in reaction to fire aimed at them. Devlin, enraged, tried to intervene, but she was told she could speak after the minister had finished, to which Burnett Devlin replied, Is it in order for the minister to lie to the House? A bit of parliamentary uh, information. It is um, against parliamentary rules in the House of Commons to accuse another minister of lying. (laughs) Really? Yeah, yeah. It's an order of the House type shit. Okay. Um, um, there was an ensuing back and forth between Devlin and Malding, while with Devlin accusing Malding of lying and Malding and his party calling for order. As Devlin recalls, what happened next is actually kind of funny. Uh, she walked down the steps and crossed the floor of the House of Commons and up to the opposing bench, 
bear in mind, Bernadette Devlin's like five two. Um, she grabbed Malding by the throat and punched him in the mouth before walking out of the chamber, leaving MPs actually fighting in the benches behind her. Hell yes. Um, when she was questioned outside the house by journalists, she told them that she did not regret her actions and intended to repeat them. She also <laughs> a- she also added the official and provisional IRA, and this is a quote. The official and provisional IRA have each said that they will kill 13 paratroopers in vengeance for those who died on Sunday. That is 26 coffins coming home to England, and I won't shed a single tear for any of them. I fucking love this person. Bernadette Devlin is a very complicated character. Um, I'm, like, yeah, I'm going to say that. I don't know anything about her. Now, this is like, actually, did you know that she did this? Like, no, I didn't. I, I didn't. Yeah. Like, she, like, one of the biggest kind of most outspoken people for uh, civil rights and justice in Northern Ireland. She gets a little bit weird as time goes on, um, but I do think she has, like, both in this historical context and also in looking at the retrospectively of the movement of republicanism, has, like, quite a lot of interesting stuff to say, and she's a fantastic writer as well. You can grab uh, some of the stuff she's written. She gives very good lectures that are on YouTube as well. Huh, okay. Yeah, she does like a lot of like college talks and that sort of thing, um, which are quite commonly recorded in Ireland. So it's just up on YouTube. Um, so time for more injustice. Um, oh, yeah. Very quickly, an inquiry was called into the actions of First Para on Bloody Sunday. And this is a real British name, Lord Widgery. Of course. It sounds like a, 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 some, a character from Fraggle Rock. Lord Widgery would sit alone and conduct uh, what was called a thorough and complete investigation into invent- into events. The hearing began on the 21st of February and less than a month later on the 14th of March, he, ha- he had heard the testimony of 114 witnesses. This included 30 civilians, 21 members of the media, 7 priests, as well as pathologists, doctors, policemen, and of course the soldiers. So now we're going to talk about like why they can't be named. Um, the soldiers, in order to protect their identities, uh, out of fear of provisional IRA retribution, were helicoptered in and entered the court wearing large sunglasses and testified under under a cipher. Um, yeah, <laughs> wearing could, large sunglasses and a floppy hat. Yeah, like they can't, you know, can't have them wearing balaclavas. It might send the wrong message. They had a must. They had the 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 sunglasses mustache uh, uh, nose combo uh, given to them. Homer? Who is Homer? <laughs> I am Guy Incognito. <laughs> um, the order of the soldiers uh, who shot earliest went sequentially, A, B, C, etc. Bear in mind that uh, the soldiers who entered Glenfoda Park uh, are E through H. Um, if you are interested in researching that, you can you can take that as you will. Um, but that is information that you could use to discover things. Yeah, um, but the thing is is that like this was standard army practice at the time this wasn't necessarily something that was unique to the bloody sunday inquiry this was just standard practice of the Mm -hmm. british army when you know their soldiers commit war crimes um just to let them get away with it yeah on the 18th of april uh, lord widgery reported uh, the lord widgery report or the widgery inquiry was published and instantly inflamed the conflict in northern ireland firstly the report criticized the march organizers stating and i quote there would have been no deaths in Londonderry on the 30th of January Ugh. if those who organized the illegal march had not thereby created the highly dangerous situation in which a clash between demonstrators and security forces was inevitable. 
This is the British government version of you shouldn't have been dressed that way. Secondly, once again, quoting directly from the report, I had to read this thing for this episode. (laughs) Subscribe on the Patreon so Joe can, you know, give me money for this. (laughs) Um, None of the deceased or wounded is proven to have been shot while handling a firearm or bomb. Some are Uh wholly acquitted of complicity in such action, but there is suspicion that some of the others had been firing weapons or handling bombs over the course of the afternoon that others had been closely helping them. Widgery essentially tired all the victims with a brush of complicity and in turn cast doubt upon their victimhood. And So, because one person possibly touched a bomb, despite the fact there's no evidence that bombs were used, that meant that all of them were we're guilty. This is some Judge Dread shit. Yeah. And like it's worth noting that um like this is 1972 ballistics research and you know forensics is not, you know, the high-tech thing that it is and there is like so much evidence in the subsequent inquiry after this that those tests were just complete bullshit. Like that right. the the detection of residue from bombs or gunpowder could have come from any any of the multiple sources uh, on possibly from being shot point blank by a rifle yep <laughs> perhaps mm. on the question of who fired first widgery concluded that he was entirely satisfied that the first firing in the courtyard was directed at the soldiers he continued in general the accounts given by the soldiers of their circumstances in which they fired and the reasons why they fired did so uh, in my opinion did so were, in my opinion, truth. Based um, on what? Wanting it to be true? Oh, Joe, if that makes you mad, you're going to get so much more <laughs> madder in a second. Um, Damn it. One of the most painful and controversial paragraphs in the report, and this like, hurt to actually write, those accustomed to listening to witnesses could not fail to be impressed by the demeanor of the soldiers of First Para. They gave their evidence with confidence and without hesitation or prevarication i actually have to ask my girlfriend what that word meant and withstood a rigorous cross-examination without contradicting themselves or each other with one or two exceptions i accept that they were telling the truth as they remember it so because they sat down for what two days and got their story story straight he's praising them for their ability to stick to the bit yeah soldiers not 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 well known at all for backing each other up not at all, especially when you're all accomplices to the same fucking war crime. Jesus Christ. What happened at Widgery was, in retrospect, nothing more than a white glove job, an official stamp on a record that held the government at no fault, and that we should all just move on. Um, the Northern Ireland Prime Minister, Brian Faulkner, faced a near civil war, um, demanded that the UK government permit the re- to the rearm the RUC and re-establish the B-specials. So, you know, once again, our response is more cops. Yep. Hit Um, hit the cop button. Get the B-sharps back on the case. Instead, the the British Prime Minister, Edward Heath, ordered Stormont to relinquish control of the police in Northern Ireland and place them under direct London control. Faulkner was outraged and blankly refused to find the government. Heath then took the decision in March 1972 to, to suspend the Stormont government and rule Northern Ireland directly from London pending the introduction of a new system of government. In the meantime, the Northern Ireland office, NIO, was established in London to govern the province. The UK, gov- 
the UK government also abolished internment and gave all Northern Ireland people the right to a fair trial. Um, how how Your fair those trials may are? Vary. Yeah, are, uh, yeah, it's going to vary. Most in the union's community were astounded, angry, and outraged at what they would called a betrayal of Ulster. So you know these uh, William of Orange fuckers are just like, no, no. How could these people that took us over treat us like imperial subjects? I yes, can't believe it. Um, the terrorist group, um, the Ulster Defense Force, was formed uh, to protect the Protestant people. So I mentioned it in the last episode. Um, the UDA are much more of a working class paramilitary group, whereas the you know the UVF is much more connected to you know the Orange Lodge, the political apparatus, the police state. Whereas the UDA is much more like similar to um, the Provos in that it's much more grassroots. It's like, let's get guns where we can. Let's kill people, blah, blah, blah. Um, but as uh, as history will tell us, the UDA also received uh, much more lenient treatment than anyone uh, else. The UDA and the UVA. Of course they did. Of course they did. While many Protestants supported the paramilitaries, many more would have nothing to do with them. Many nationalists were pleased that Stormont had finally fallen, but the continued civil right but continued the civil rights campaign. Although the Irish government welcomed the move and pleaded with the IRA to call for a ceasefire, the IRA regarded London rule as worse than Belfast rule and stepped up their campaign of murders and bombings. They announced that they would rid Ireland of the British even if they had to demo- quote demolish Belfast brick by brick. Um, in 1972, 467 people were murdered in Northern Ireland. The situation got so bad that the UK government even agreed to negotiate with the IRA in 1972. The IRA called a truce during the meetings. However, the IRA demands giving Northern Ireland to the Irish Republic were out of the question uh, to the UK government and they refused. The IRA response was to detonate 26 no-warning car bombs within 40 minutes in Belfast on the 21st of July 1972. 11 people were killed and 130 were injured. The day is now known as Bloody Friday, and this is something that will be relevant later in this episode, and certainly in the next episode, the final episode of this series, is that um, the IRA generally would give a warning uh, to the police in the UK before they detonated the bomb. It was usually, you know, about like half an hour, 15 minutes, and they would say, you know, we're going to blow shit up. Hmm. In March 1973, the British government announced the new way Northern Ireland would be governed. It would be an assembly where unionists and nationalists would share power. The leader of the Ulster Unionist Party, the UUP, Faulkner, uh, reluctantly agreed to the new arrangements, although he said he would never share power with anyone whose objective was to break up the union. That's a quote. Yeah, you can't have a a power-sharing agreement when you're political ideologies are literally diametrically opposed to one another like you can't what what could you possibly work together to do argue that's what you could do just argue yeah it's it's like an ouroboros of bureaucracy (laughs) um many unionists left the party in protest and formed the vanguard unionist progressive party which was totally opposed to power sharing for them uh, anything short of a return to Stormont was unacceptable. The elections were held in June 1973. 33% of the vote was for the Vanguards, 29% for the pro-power-sharing UUP. The rest of the vote went to pro-power-sharing parties. After the elections, all the parties which supported the power-sharing were consulted and agreed 
in November 1973 to the makeup of the overall governing executive of Northern Ireland. Although the number of nationalists was much higher than in Stormont, many nationalists still felt that unionists were overrepresentative in the in the executive. Before the executive could take over running Northern Ireland, the role that uh, the role that the Republic of Ireland was to play had to be defined. Representatives from Northern Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, and London met in at Sunningdale in Berkshire, England, to discuss this. Anti-power sharing parties were not invited, and this caused a lot of resentment in Northern Ireland. After much heated discussion, a Council of Ireland was finally agreed, uh, which would work to improve relations between the two states. The UUP and the other delegates signed the Sunningdale Agreement on the 9th of December 1973. It appeared to please all sides at the talks, and Faulkner believed he could persuade the Unionist people that it was a good thing. The executive took over government in Northern Ireland on the 1st of January 1974. It is also worth noting that in 1974, the British government tried to close the matter of Bloody Sunday by offering a compensation settlement ranging between £250 to £16,500 to, relative, to relatives of those who died. The How government the fuck sta- did they rate who was worth what? Like, yeah, we didn't really like your uh, your brother there, so he's worth 250 bucks. Yeah, like the government sh- stated that the payments had been given in the spirit of goodwill and conciliation, but to the families who wanted justice and the exoneration of their relatives, this was, you know, unacceptable. This is pretty much just a payoff. Yeah, yeah it's hush money. If you accept this money, we uh, like we're not going to talk about this anymore because we'll consider the matter closed. Yeah. Um. However, there were serious problems for the executive. There was a lot of disagreement between parties in the assembly, and the role of the Council of Ireland was not made clear. Additionally, paramilitary activity in Northern Ireland was ongoing and. And although the police were controlled from London, the Northern Ireland executive got the blame. The anti-power sharing unionists were outraged that the Republic was uh, to have a say in Northern Ireland and demanded that the agreement be scrapped. In March 1974 uh, general election, anti-Sunningdale parties won 11 of the 12 Westminster seats. The head of the executive, Jerry Fitt, claimed that the people did not yet understand Sunningdale and pointed to opinion polls that still showed majority support for the agreement from both sides of the community. Despite the election results, no changes were made to to the Sunningdale Agreement or the Executive. By now, the anti-Sunningdale unionists realised that democratic means were not going to get their demands for abolition of the agreement. In 1974, the loyalist paramilitary groups and many of the anti-Sunningdale politicians joined the small Ulster Workers' Council. The council began to organise action against the government. They warned the assembly that if they refused to abolish Sunningdale, then they would hold a general strike. On the 14th of May 1974, the assembly voted to ignore the UWC's demands and a general strike was called. Known as the General Workers' Strike, it was the worst economic event in Northern Ireland. Power stations were closed as workers left, and as a result, no other industry could operate either. Petrol workers went on strike, the province ran out of oil, and soon cars became useless. The strikers also blocked roads and travel became impossible. Security officers shut, uh, social security offices shut, and it was impossible for people to get their unemployment benefit. This, on the whole, you know, since large portions of the Irish Catholic community were unemployed, this was also kind of a bit targeted. Uh, um, okay. Only a handful of businesses in the province remained open. After a week, the government began to realise how serious the situation was and began to attempt to get the workers to return to work. The strike, however, 
soon got the backing of most unionists when the UK Prime Minister Harold Wilson launched a scathing attack on the strikers in a speech on 25th of May, demanding to know who these people think they are. It served only to increase unionist resolve. Even the army were unable to break the strike. Strikes work, people. Yeah, especially if they're that thorough. Eventually, the executive agreed to delay the introduction of the Council of Ireland, but the UWC uh, said it was too little too late and continued to strike. On the 27th of May, the executive ordered the army to commandeer the petrol stations and oil facilities in Northern Ireland. The UWC response was to close every last business that had remained open in Northern Ireland. The country became to uh, Northern Ireland came to a complete standstill and even food was a bit scarce. When Faulkner appealed in failure to the Secretary of, the, of State to negotiate with the strikers and when faced with economic ruin, all the unionist executive members resigned. The executive uh, had collapsed and Northern Ireland was ruled again directly from London. On the 29th of May, the UWC called off their strikes in triumph. Well done. Dur- I mean, <laughs> honestly. Yeah. Um, during the rest of the 1970s, the IRA campaign of paramilitary action and the loyalist responses continued. Between 1973 and 1980, 1,398 people were killed in shootings, sniper attacks, bombs, landmines and booby traps. There there were many attempts to bring about a settlement. A second IRA ceasefire collapsed in 1975 despite the efforts of various groups such as the peace people. As the army became wise to the IRA, uh, the paramilitaries were forced into being more and more secretive. Many of them went underground uh, while others while others seeing violence as an unsatisfactory solution joined political parties. Most paramilitary prisoners at this time were held in the Mays prison in southwest Belfast and were classed by the British as special category. Let me guess. So that means that they have no rights as afforded to normal prisoners. Oh, um, <clears throat> this like this is the end of the episode. I'm going to talk about Met the Mays prison and all this stuff in the next episode because it is important in the continuity of what's to come next but uh, in 1976 however the British announced plans to remove this special category so essentially you would not be classed as a political prisoner um, and would instead treat them like any other criminal. This meant that they had stricter rules, had to wear their prison clothes, many IRA prisoners and a few others refused to wear prison clothes they sat in their cells with a blanket around them and refused to wash or clean their cells. Some, o- some also spread their feces on the walls and urinated on the floor and their mattresses. We love a good finger painting campaign. It would become known as the Dirty Protest. And that is where we're going to pick Ugh. up next episode. Man, another uh, huge, uh, another name like the Troubles. Like, oh, it's the Dirty Protest. Like, oh, you mean like... They didn't clean the rooms. Like, oh, there's, there's spreading shit on the walls. <laughs> I feel like we could come up with a better name for that. So, Joe, how do you feel? So this is what it feels like to be on the receiving end of this. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Thanks oh, for that. Yeah, it gets, uh, it, gets, it gets worse. Well, some, some worse, some better in the next episode. Um, but, yeah, like, I, I got to be honest with uh, anyone listening, like writing that section about Bloody Sunday was like extremely hard and um, particularly like seeing like names and like how regardless of what age people are um, something like that is a tragedy. But like seeing how many like teenagers died yeah. is just heartbreaking. It's um, it's one of those things. It's uh, whenever because these were these weren't um, 
I mean, and no excuse if they were anyway, but these, these weren't like conscripts who were thrust upon this hev- heavily stressful situation. These were people who were supposed to be some of the best soldiers in the British military. They were combat hardened. They massacred fucking civilians uh, twice in six months um, because that is what they were sent there to do. And if it wasn't, if that's not what they were there, if, if that's not why they were sent there, then they would have been held accountable, but they weren't like that's as someone from the outside looking in, like the, the British got exactly what they wanted. They, they got roving, de- they got roving death squads going through Northern Ireland. I can't really say that like, this is unique to Northern Ireland, but it's also like just the level of cruelty that w- the soldier shown like shooting people execution style on the ground as they're already laying dying um soldier f and soldier g um like essentially taking the opportunity to like shoot civilians in some of the testimonies that like i read so much of widgery and of the subsequent savile inquiry um for this episode and an unfortunate inquiry name yeah and they're the whistleblower uh, 027, like it, it has holes in it. He has it has its own problems, but just the fact that so many uh, people just like saw Soldier F and Soldier G break off and take the opportunity to just shoot civilians, and like um, it, it's a it's a question that a lot of people bring up with this is that you know, oh, these soldiers had seen like so much in the previous months and you know couldn't do anything it the was the previous it. months when they carried out a different massacre yes that is correct yeah you know <laughs> yeah get I, the I, fuck out of here yeah i mean in comparison to something we something else we covered in the show is like the the kent state shootings where the national guard massacred college students where that was like a group thing they were i mean they weren't it's not like i'm saying that it's both bad of course but like you had a group do this effectively all at once, which can be easily explained by this concept of this contagious shooting, um, which is still very bad and they should all still be in prison. But like in this one, you had small groups of paras running around doing whatever the fuck they wanted on their own initiative. Like that is so much different and is so much worse because that means they, there was no contagious shooting. They didn't feel threatened because like, you know, even if you believe that they had bombs thrown at them at one point where they did have a shot fired at them in the very beginning. That was 10 minutes before. Now you have these small groups of men off on their own, effectively hunting human beings completely independent from any control or any previous threats. It's, it's death squad shit. That's, that's all it can possibly be. It can't be explained by any other psychology of, uh, of, of shooting like this isn't contagious shooting this isn't like i feared for my life they're shooting children in the back you know yeah and an interesting thing is that with colonel wilford in between the intervening years between widgery and savile in the 90s essentially he kind of admitted that they made a mistake like he in that kind of philosophical way that he asked well what is force he also kind of he opened himself to the idea that something wrong had happened and then as soon as they announced the Savile inquiry he just doubled down on no we did nothing wrong of course he's he he was almost willing to acknowledge they got something wrong until it became official 
Yeah, and I think from my research, it seems that it was more so that he saw it as relitigating his soldiers and like protecting those under his command than essentially admitting that they did something wrong. That like the soldiers had already answered the questions, they'd already stood, you know, not trial, but they had stood in front of the Widgery uh, inquiry and, you know, said their piece and gave their evidence and that it should be, you know, done. Fucking ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. There's like, for anyone who is interested in it, there's like some, there's a lot of, so much material out there and like so much witness stuff, uh, witness statements about it. And it's, if you want to learn more, there is more there. There's so much more there. And some of the stuff that I'll get into in the next episode, um, is quite literally insane. Um, how the British state dealt with the aftermath of Bloody Sunday as it went into the 70s and the 80s. Oh, lovely. Can't wait. Bet you're excited to hear about a guy who commits war crimes in Angola. How do I know? Like, I, you know what? Sure, I bet Rhodesia pops up at some point. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know. I'm trying to think of where these psychopaths would end up being at home. Apartheid, South Africa, Rhodesia, Angola, Mozambique, maybe. Uh, Liberia, maybe. Sierra Leone, yeah. Oh, Sierra Leone comes up, don't of worry. Of course it, god damn it! Uh, thanks very much for letting me just um, give you mental damage, Joe. I hope everybody really enjoyed me uh, being on the other end of it. Um, it doesn't happen often, to be fair. Uh, or, I think this is the first time it's ever happened. Uh, but I hope everybody enjoyed it as much as I did. The episode, not the subject matter, I suppose. Yeah, I, I, I can give you a small comfort that like this is probably the most depressing that this series is going to get. Um, ah, challenge accepted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we're going to start off the next episode with a bang. I hope everybody enjoys the next time Tom is on the show and I he is my guest for a, a, the three-part series of the Rwandan genocide, so I can get him back for this. Um, Joe, thanks uh, once again for letting me host this series. If you want to hear more history stuff from me, I host a tattoo history podcast it's about the history of everything told through the history of tattooing called beneath the skin um myself and my co-host dr matt lauder matt's a art historian we talk about like everything from uh inuk tattooing to weird freak shows of the 20th century and the 19th century and you know we're, we're talking about video games we have an episode coming up about what's the reality like of actually running a tattoo business um but yeah um but yeah check us out you can find us on all streaming platforms you can find me online at god at guinies that's g-o-t uh i'll make sure i put it in the show notes yeah just put it in the show <laughs> yeah. no one can ever remember it whenever i, I say it on my own show I so cool uh once again thanks very much joe yeah everybody thank you so much for listening if you like what we do here consider supporting us on patreon um, you get bonus episodes like this one early or you get bonus episodes, episodes like this one early. Uh, you get access to the discord, you get books, you get stickers, you get all sorts of other fun stuff. Um, or if you don't, don't, it's your money. Do with it as you please. Leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you use. Uh, because that is one of the reasons that we just won best history podcast. Uh, so so yeah, like uh, it, it helps through algorithmic-based reasons I don't fully understand, but once put in front of my face, I now know it's important. Uh, but again, Tom, thank you so much. Everybody, we'll see you on part four.